Welcome back to part two of our conversation with Michael Apple. In part two, Lucia and I talk with Michael about the struggle of democracy in education. Yes. Um, I wonder if you might talk more about some, some of the places where you see um, radical education and pushing back really happening. Um, if any, any specific places or sites or movements or people come to mind? Sure. That's a crucial question. Um, there are, we, first we have to ask who the actors are. So mm -hmm. uh, in order to identify place, we have to say, um, are there limits in the way we think about who could possibly act? So let me give examples of a range of actors. The place that I've worked most closely with is Porto Alegre in Brazil. Um, mm -hmm. And this is uh, where an entire community living in some of the poorest places, these are called favelas, which in Portuguese has a dual meaning. It means slum, but also community. So it's a work of a word that documents impoverishment, but also pride in what we were able to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And this has what we might call thick democracy. Um, where the poorest of the poor and poor communities uh, are have demanded that the state be a learner, not just a teacher. And they've instituted one of my favorite policies called participatory budgeting. Mm -hmm. That is that anyone, anyone who can be influenced by a policy must have a voice in it. So let me give an example. Some parts of it, teachers are given an extra month's salary and they go into the communities to learn about the religious impulses, the cultural impulses, um, the knowledge impulses, sort of the popular knowledge forms that the community has and what the kids would bring to schools. Mm -hmm. And by being taught by the community uh, with this full community participation, their task is to form thematic units that organize the a knowledge that we want kids to understand science and mathematics and history and literature and to connect it to the lived experience of their students. So it's it's not a fiction. Mm. We have a lot of fiction around critical pedagogy in the United States, so that's largely rhetorical, but we don't give teachers and communities the ability to work together, to participate together, and we certainly don't give students enough voice. So they have what's called the citizen school, where they actually elect the principals. They're not just imposed from the strong state. And Brazil has very strong government control. Um, and they also have uh, citizen control, joint control over budgets. So an example would be something like this. Let's say that the state and one city that I've worked in, this is true, has money for a new football field not U.S. style football, but what we call soccer, in gang-infested areas. And we know from horrible experiences that there will be battles between multiple gangs over who will control their football field. So let's say there's $100,000 or $50,000 to build a new football field. So gang members and youth then have a say in where that football field will be built. Now that means that we don't need more prisons. Hmm. We, don't, we don't need 
more police because this, the youth now are working together on things that are current and powerful in their lives. Well, that's just a simple example of the kinds of things that I think become important. So right now in Chicago, they're beginning to use participatory budgeting. Mm. I would I would like to take that uh, in every institution, every school in the United States, every community organization. So we talk about full service schools, which by and large are advances, but we need participation that goes much further. Mm -hmm. so there we have teachers and communities with a voice and students with a voice. Another of my favorite examples is the algebra project in Baltimore, mm -hmm. where um, they are taking my arguments and um, Antonio Gramsci's arguments about critical epistemologies and saying this, we're not doing kids who are going to be tested on mathematical knowledge any favors if we say we're not going to teach it to them because it's elite knowledge. That's a mistake. Yeah. The task is to take that knowledge, to transform it, to add what students already know in their experiences, and then organize it so it solves pressing ideological and practical and economic problems in the community. Mm -hmm. So that's the math for social justice movement. So in mm -hmm. Baltimore, they worked with the kids around issues of statistics and algebra that they were going to be tested on. Um, and they said, let's talk about what's going on in your community that really makes you angry. Hmm. And one of them was that the state was going to build a new juvenile prison in the community and money for health care, education, etc., would be drained. School class sizes would go up as this money goes to build the new billion dollar juvenile incarceration mm. device. Um, you know, it, it cements the school to prison pipeline visibly yeah. in there, a giant megalith called the prison. And what the youth did was to use their mathematical skills to find out had the juvenile uh, crime gone down, yes, by 40 percent. Hmm. Um, etc. So they did all of the work and then they formed an alliance with critical journalists and they used the racist understanding that these kids couldn't be smart enough mm -hmm. to contact all of the TV and radio stations mm -hmm. and to show how articulate they were in all these radio stations, normally with white directors, were amazingly surprised that kids were articulate who were coming from the slums and were kids of color young women and young men saying, we cannot tolerate another prison. And here's the data. Hmm. The ultimate effect was the prison was not built. So hmm. this becomes a way, this becomes the example of almost all of the epistemological and political elements of critical pedagogy. And one of the ways in which it works is, it's not just teachers and communities that have a voice, but the youth themselves have a voice. And that's crucial. Um, one of the things in critical cultural studies that I love is the idea that the question that, you know, does the subaltern, do the subaltern speak? And the answer is, it always speaks. The mm -hmm. question is, is anybody listening? Mm -hmm. So can we find mechanisms in which people with power have the opportunity and in many ways are forced to listen to subaltern groups? So, so these are the kinds of places I want, but I also want us to 
begin to think of this not around schools, mm-hmm. but around other pedagogic sites. Talk radio becomes a good example of this. Yeah. So I'm on public radio and was on um, every two weeks on a show around educational issues mm-hmm. um, where people would, you know, there'd be an, an issue such as TFA or about teacher unions or about um, literacy practices or testing or privatization. And I would talk for about 10 minutes around this policy that the state was trying to uh, to steal money from universities again. And then it was talk radio. People would call up from all over the place. Some of them supportive, some of them hate, really quite hateful. And I had to learn how to talk not by quoting Gramsci or Marx or Mm -hmm. Paulo Freire. I had to learn how to do what I used to do, which is I was a teachers union president. And I was an anti-racist and anti-racist and anti-corporate activist. I had to relearn how to be a really clear person, a critical journalist who can speak to people in ways that understands their life. Mm-hmm. So I be, it was teaching of me, but also I think that we, it's like this podcast. I think that we have to learn what to do with this. It's one of the reasons I think what you're doing is so crucial because the right is brilliant about talking plain folks English. Yeah. Too many folks in the critical pedagogic community, their only political work is at their keyboard. Mm -hmm. And that worries the hell out of me. Mm -hmm. The right knows uh, that everything counts. Everything. And the left is very good about spewing rhetoric um, or quoting from Foucault that's fine. That's crucial. Theoretical work is absolutely crucial. We need new language. We need new perspectives. We need, we need histories to restore what we used to know. Yeah. But that's, that's insufficient. Our task is also to learn how to write in ways that are compelling. Um, and uh, it's one of the reasons that, uh, you know, like the, the newest book, um, uh, yeah, the, the struggle for democracy in education. Mm-hmm. We delayed that for six extra months with uh, Routledge saying, so when's the book, Michael? Mm-hmm. Um, to give it to teachers and give it to others and say, is this clear enough? And that's why the companion book is always something like democratic schools. I am not satisfied with simply being a well-known academic. Mm-hmm. The democratic schools uh, has... You know, it was originally published by AF, uh, you know, ASCD, um, and we demanded that uh, we said we won't accept any royalties. Mm. It should be one of the books that ASCD um, gives out for free to anyone with a complete membership. Mm. And that was our task of saying we're not going to use this money uh, for ourselves. We want this to be in the hands of teachers. So mm-hmm. it was a tactical move. And it has been translated into Japanese, into Chinese, into Spanish, into Portuguese, into Slovenian. Um, and that's a mark of, if someone were to ask me, what's a book I'm one of the mo- I'm proudest of that Jim Bean and I did? It's that. Um, we had, you know, the idea was to be the critical secretaries of those people who are 
under fire all the time and to show respect. When I was teaching, one of the things I used to do when I was teaching in public schools was to shut the door and do what I had to do. Mm -hmm. And I think there are thousands of teachers who live behind closed doors in the face of all these attempts to de-skill them, to intensify them, to take their power and autonomy away. And part of our task as critical pedagogues is also to make clear that there are thousands of teachers doing remarkable stuff, to publicize it and to do it in a way that is deeply respectful. Otherwise, this becomes just academic. And mm -hmm. I think that's limited. It's important, but limited. Yeah, yeah. Where do you see, what groups do you see doing this? I, mean, we, I mentioned uh, Rethinking Schools, um, uh, Teaching for Change, the Zen Education Project. Are there, are there others where you see um, sort of coalitions being built? Sure, on? yeah. Um, Chicago becomes a good example of this and Vancouver in Canada, hmm. where there's a movement for what's called teachers, a teachers union for social justice. So it's social justice unionism. Mm -hmm. And this is actually important. I mean, I think that teacher unions have never been more important and they are under attack. So I don't want us to just forget about what's called industrial unionism. Um, mm -hmm. you know, that there's teachers are losing their health care. Their class sizes in some cities are going up to 50, 50 students in middle and secondary schools. That's insane. Mm -hmm. My first teaching in New Jersey, I had 46 kids in my class. That was pretty hard to do. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I survived. I think that I did okay. I sometimes still get letters from the kids saying, you know, do we remember you? I and mean, that's lovely. Mm -hmm. But it's really hard to survive with these kinds of things when no matter how good you are, you're being told you're not good enough because you haven't raised your achievement scores mm -hmm. because you can't teach anything that isn't on the test. So teaching is being transformed into testing. Mm -hmm. so, so part of this, it seems to me, is, is to look at those places where teachers unions have defended teachers, but also have formed alliances with community activists mm. in powerful ways. So Chicago, for instance, it's teacher union under you know, Karen Lewis uh, before she got ill, when she was president, um, made it clear that teachers unions, the Chicago teachers union had to act in a way that would work with the community to stop the um, closing of 50 schools that were largely for kids of color. And it had to fight against the gentrification of public education. Yeah. Um, now, that's a model that can be found in many school districts. Increasingly, it's hard to do. It's, it's what was done in Milwaukee, partly when Bob Peterson was president of the teachers union. And you know, again, he's one of the founders of Rethinking Schools. Mm -hmm. That's being seen in Los Angeles now and Philadelphia. But this is being countered by, by neoliberals by having more and more teachers not replaced and then to replace them with TFA folks. Mm -hmm. uh, I would think that what we want to do is unionize TFA folks. Um, mm -hmm. That might help this situation. Yeah. And I also think we can learn about what's going on uh, in indigenous communities. 
Mm -hmm. um, there are movements and reservations in and elsewhere um, to work with indigenous teachers um, and to work with teachers colleges to have more indigenous teachers um, so that we have in the union itself more representation mm -hmm. from oppressed groups. Now that's slowly growing. I think it's very, very important. Um, and uh, again, that's that's where I think we can learn from other places, uh, where um, there are close connections with the teachers union in Porto Alegre, and in São Paulo and elsewhere, and in England right now, to fight back against neoliberalism, and to form alliances with working class groups. Um, there's you know, and th there are I think tons of instances of that that have not gotten the publicity mm -hmm. that they deserve. Uh, and it's one of the books I want to work on now, which is um, sort of the diaries of teachers in real public schools who are working with communities. Yeah. Uh, and that, that stories, those are stories that have to be told. Mm -hmm. Oh, I was just gonna, I was just gonna say, it makes me think of so much of the, pedagogical theory we read is developed in the context of grassroots organizing, whether it's Freedom Schools or Frere or um, teachers working in communities doing, doing um, theory as they practice, connecting with working class people that make this make the schools what it is that send their kids there that come to the t the parents meetings or don't because they're working 60 huh. hours a week um that there's already theory happening um exactly. and it's and that people who are writing about this and in universities need to recognize that and also practice it ourselves i agree totally with you this is one of the things i talked about about that some of the work in critical pedagogy is largely rhetorical. Mm. Critical pedagogy is critical epistemology as its basis. And that basis says the following, the best theory is done in relationship to its object. And that object mm. is education. Yeah. And I think for some people in critical pedagogy, including some quite well-known people, um, mm. they participate in this epistemological war. Mm -hmm. That is, they are so concerned about the elegance of their theory hmm. but basically you need three books to understand them their book the postmodern and post-structural dictionary and the <laughs> dictionary of the dictionary hmm. now again i don't want to be misunderstood there i mean when when i first wrote ideology and curriculum part of the task was to introduce a language that was deeply unfamiliar to people in education hegemony ideology common sense um, you know all of this was not a language you know that this was to go further than uh, than um than the tradition to reintroduce a tradition that had been lost and to change the tradition that was there so so i am not against theory at all but too much of this forgets that the object of this is schools and teaching and curriculum and we are not slumming. That is, too much of this is to say, I mean, it's, it's oddly enough a reproduction of the project of education as a discipline. We are so concerned that education, people in education are less than, that we're not in the sciences. 
were not in these elegant theoretical forms. This is why, for instance, positivism became so important in the history of educational research. That is, the more we could be like psychology, mm. which was we knew a real science, supposedly, the better we would be, the more respect we would get. And that demand for respect has this sort of pyrrhic effect, which is if we can't be, you know, if we can't be real, that is, if we can't be just like the big boys, and I think it's, it is a form of masculinity, if we can't be like the big boys, mm. somehow we are less deserving. And I think that's tragic. Mm. So I would ask my colleagues as well to say, yeah, not, not, not that you're slumming, but you know, to remember what this is about, that it is critical epistemological form. It should be collective. Knowledge is a social production that requires that there be many, many voices, not just us. And at the same time, we are, as we are reading and keeping alive the multiplicity of traditions that are critical, and that is crucial, we have to also increase the number of voices who criticize it, who can teach us. So Lucia's point is absolutely central to the critical project. Without it, I think that we will get lost in the struggles at the university. Though again, the struggles of the university are crucial. Yeah. I can't think of anything more complicated than educational scholarship. It's scholarship about every damn thing in the world. <laughs> and so if we, you know, we've earned the respect uh, so I, I'm, I no longer worry about the respect. I yeah. think we gain respect by communities as well as universities. Yeah, well, one of the new ideas that's not new at all that consultants are trucking around to struggling uh, institutions of higher education um, as a way for their to um, guarantee their future survival is market-driven education as, mm -hmm. as the model. Um, I find this terrifying because not only is it, um, you know, market-driven, it's a business model, it's a neoliberal capitalist model. Um, it's one that doesn't challenge the status quo and also doesn't lead toward uh, freedom. I mean, if there's... Um, domestication or freedom, according to Freire, this certainly leads toward domestication. So, um, you know, how do you, how would you say to combat that kind of, yeah, that kind of rhetoric that is, that seems to be really dominant. And when you ask for any kind of theory on it, um, no one has any. Yeah. Well, this uh, is, this is exactly what's going on. Now, let me give an example. For a while, um, for a three to four year period, I was also a professor at the Institute of Education at the University of London. Mm -hmm. And during my first year, I was introduced to their newest dean. Um, and uh, the newest dean was basically the dean for marketing. His formal title was the dean for branding. <laughs> now. I just sat there. I didn't know whether to laugh or to just cry. <laughs> and that is the model increasingly. Yeah. So um, 
So, so we can see this, for instance, uh, where institutions are forced into this. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and it's not just marketization, it's as funding is cut, this has an epistemological effect um, so that we must do research that brings in money. Mm -hmm. So something that occurs uh, in Wisconsin that never did within the social sciences and humanities in order to get tenure now at Wisconsin, which was had pr great pride that we tenured early and often. Mm -hmm. And the, the fundamental criterion was, did you teach us something? Mm -hmm. And it was for promise as well as accomplishment. Now they ask, how much money did you bring in? Mm -hmm. So it's marketization of, of ourselves. It's not just the institution. It's we must be entrepreneurs of our lives. That is the ultimate in, in neoliberal agendas. It's not just that the institution must be entrepreneurial, but we as individuals must be entrepreneurs as well. Mm. Yeah. Now, that, so it's an attack on identity in many ways. And one of the things that, again, uh, in, uh, in educating the right way, I spent a lot of time on this. That is, what the, what the right does is to take those words that have what might be called an emotional economy. When we hear them, we like them. It's what mm -hmm. Raymond Williams called key words, words like freedom, democracy, um, justice, and keep, keep the words in circulation. I mean, neoliberals talk about democracy and freedom all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and to take, it's like a glass of water, keep the glass, pour out the meanings, because these are our words. Mm -hmm. and we, we want to use democracy and freedom. Mm -hmm. And instead of democracy being thick participation, critical pedagogic work, we're all involved. Um, it's now um, purchasing on a market. Mm -hmm. so, so freedom now is the freedom to buy. Mm -hmm. So schools are put on a market, teachers are put on a market, curriculum are bought, not built, tests are bought, not built. Um, so um, part of this is the importance of history, to remember that this is an imposition. It's to reassert our control of these words. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. so Foner, Eric Foner's book, uh, The Story of American Freedom, is something I think that all educators need to reread if they haven't already, showing that there's always been a struggle from day one about these words. And it's also important that we understand that this notion of freedom as purchasing, not only is it a long history, but it's reintroduced as public choice theory. And that is the history of racism in the United States. Mm -hmm. So Buchanan, the person, the economist who won the Nobel Economic Prize for mm -hmm. economics for establishing this, took this need from the attempt by white councils to stop desegregation. And so the history of this needs to be taught. This is not neutral. This is not just neutral marketization. Its history is the denial of people of color their right and power over their own schools and communities. Mm -hmm. So part of our task, part of the academic task, is to actually do the kind of work that needs to be done, to re-alert ourselves 
on our own history and what this history is meant to do. Mm -hmm. And then um, I think we, we uh, have a task as well of working with those people. And again, Rethinking Schools becomes the best example, my favorite example, of working with them, not as leaders, but to give back the kinds of things that they need. So an example would be when Rethinking Schools was first established by undergraduate students, and I would go there and we would proofread for the next edition. That is, we'd give our labor back to it. And it's that these seem like small things, but these are actually crucial things. We are not defined by our identities just as academics, but also as members of communities. And if we can't focus on our places and our responsibilities, it's sort of hard for us to tell somebody else what they should do in schools, etc. Mm -hmm. It does mean that your your attempt to democratize Agnes Scott is absolutely crucial. And it seems to me religious fellowships have a lot to teach us on this. They are yeah. meant to be communities. And mm -hmm. I think that the left actually has done a poor job of remembering the importance of some religious understanding of these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the religious right is now re, has now taken charge of religious discourse. Yeah. And that's a tragedy. A lot of people who are deeply religious see the church and the synagogue and the mosque and all kinds of religious and spiritual places as communities of co-teaching. Mm -hmm. Well, that language has been stolen also by evangelical pastors yeah. um, who uh, are conservative and who forget that religion, you know, how can we understand black liberation struggles without mm -hmm. understanding the black church and the black, black mosque? Yeah. So, so I think that part of this is to recover the notion of community that even some people in our faculties who are worried about, you know, do we want to be democratic, but who might have religious understandings, we might want to reintroduce this in some yeah. powerful ways. Yeah. And you're really talking about democracy all the way down, you know, exactly. from from schools to policy to systems to and I'm, and I'm thinking what immediately comes to mind is the new poor people's campaign i agree uh, that's a very very good example uh, building or, the, or the moral monday movement that's yes. an absolutely mm -hmm. exactly mm -hmm. well we're getting unfortunately for us close to time uh, is there anything you'd like to leave us with? Um, anything else that you're working on in terms of democratic schooling um, and you know reclaiming uh, these spaces of transformation and liberation? Well, um, the the newest book of you know the struggle for democracy and education. Um, Lessons from Social Realities is the path I want us to go on, which is, uh -huh. um, can we be the critical secretaries of these, these kinds of gains? But I want us to be serious about this. The right never sleeps. Uh -huh. And I don't want us to celebrate our, these victories prematurely. That is, I want us to document, present, analyze, the gains that are being made all over the place. Otherwise, cynicism is the answer and then the right wins. And that's that's a real tragedy. 
But mm -hmm. I, want us, I want us to take a position that, that's my sort of mantra, optimism with no illusions whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So we yeah. need to follow up on these, not just to offer help, but we need to understand the, what lasts. What can we learn tactically from those gains that have lasted? Rethinking schools becomes a good example. It mm -hmm. has lasted. A lot, of, a lot of similar kinds of things have not lasted. So we mm -hmm. need to pay attention to what the right has done because the right learns immediately and it goes on the attack. Mm -hmm. So taking that seriously means that we have to, oddly enough, learn what the right has done, what it is doing. Uh, we're not the only people who are occupying this space. So uh, part of our task, it seems to me, is to be a little less, less self-congratulatory at times mm. um, and uh, to be more humble. You know, this is a lot. So maybe we can learn from the self-help mantra. It's 20 miles into the forest. There's no shortcut out. Mm. So and, and last, yeah. we must never give up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think of a great Gramsci line, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will, as you're talking. Yes, this is one of my favorite phrases, except I want <laughs> us to remember that it's not just optimism of the will, it's am I willing to work and sacrifice with other people on building a will that can win? So <laughs> you might want to take a phrase that has become too popular, and that's the phrase grit can yeah. we combine will with grit hmm. yeah. well that sounds like a good note to end on to leave our listeners and yeah. ourselves with. I, I thank you for doing this uh, at any time i can be helpful on this i certainly will i think that part of the answer is also doing exactly what the two of you are doing well thank you michael it's for a pleasure all your work yeah. and for talking with us today. Yes, it's been a real pleasure. It's been mutual. Thanks. All right. Bye. Take care Bye. and be well. Bye. 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 You've been listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. My co-host, Lucia Hulsether, and I interviewed Michael Apple on democratic education and the ideologies of curriculum. The producer for Nothing Never Happens is China Wilson. Aaliyah Harris is the audio engineer. The opening music is by Aviva and the Flying Penguins, written and orchestrated and performed by Lance Eric Hagen. The interstitial music is also by them. The outro music is by Paul Myrie of Wabash College and the Wabash Center for Teaching and Learning. The closing music by Paul is entitled Requiem for a Modern Prophet. You can find Paul's music on ReverbNation.com. Thank you for listening.